This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello, welcome to the party room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast, joining you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And soon we're going to be joined on the party room by John Keogh, economics editor at the Australian Financial Review, to talk about superannuation. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. Super can be very sexy. We are talking about more than $3 trillion of your money, our money, and what the government wants to do with it, and also with the tax concessions that abound in super. It's been the topic du jour, really, in politics this week, and it's shaping up to be a red-hot fight between the Labor government and the opposition. So we are going to get to that. But first, PK, another theme this week for the government is national security. Anthony Albanese gave an address to the National Press Club all about stability, confidence and security. That's a quote, by the way. The timing of the speech linked to the government's receiving of the Defence Strategic Review, which we haven't seen yet, but we will see. The PM was very keen to broaden out this speech, though, so it went from beyond sort of just talking about our defence forces to broaden out the whole notion of security in itself and use it as a platform to push his government's agenda on things like climate policy, manufacturing funds, skills policy, education, and a favourite for all Prime Ministers, PK, getting on with the job. The very day that I had the honour of being elected Labor leader, I spoke about Australians suffering from conflict fatigue. People were sick of the short-termism, the stunts and scares designed to whip up division or create a diversion. That political culture is corrosive for democracy. It feeds those who cultivate cynicism and deal in misinformation. The best way to push back against it is to demonstrate the capacity of government to deliver a real improvement in people's lives. This is why my team and I are determined to bring a greater sense of purpose to the work of government. Building greater security for our nation, greater confidence in our economy and greater stability in people's lives. That was the pitch, PK. Anthony Albanese there addressing the National Press Club, foreshadowing his government's response to the Defence Strategic Review, which he says we will see in the budget, but also talking up the strategic and economic positives of the AUKUS Pact, which was another big theme of this speech. It's always good territory, really, for a Prime Minister, isn't it, to be talking about defence and security? Yeah, it is, Fran. And the Prime Minister is starting to find, I think, his feet in this space. At the press club, he spoke about the challenges confronting Australia, which are enormous. I mean, not just our country. The world is in very, very dire times, I think, difficult times. And he zoned in on the conversation around sovereignty, which many have seen as one of the biggest flaws of the AUKUS agreement. Now, he he was asked very pointedly, actually, by Catherine Murphy, who sometimes you hear on this podcast, a regular on breakfast from The Guardian, about that, about sovereignty. Um, He reiterated that Australia will maintain complete sovereignty within AUKUS, 
But did you think the PM did enough to really deal with concerns around sovereignty fully, Fran? I mean, he, you know, he could say that, but has that fundamental question of what happens if we have different views in a particular conflict, how that would be sorted out? Well, it's hard to do in the theoretical, isn't it? And we are many, many, many years off, let's be clear here, from getting these nuclear submarines through the AUKUS Pact. So they're many, 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 many years away. So this won't really be tested. The PM, whenever he is asked, and he did it again in response to Catherine, was to just state categorically that uh, we will maintain our sovereignty in any situation. He said, we've seen it before in operations with other powers, other allies, situations where Australian forces have been working alongside forces of other nations and we have remained sovereign in our decision-making. Some might beg to differ on some of those occasions, but at least two Prime Ministers, uh, former Prime Ministers, Paul Keating and Malcolm Turnbull, have both raised the sovereignty idea as a problem here and it's something that I really think would only be, you know, tested once we are really in the throes of of getting these submarines into the water picker. So uh, until that point, a Prime Minister of Australia is always going to maintain Australian sovereignty. But the PM also took the opportunity in this speech to link national security to our energy security in Australia, both in sovereign capability terms, manufacturing terms, and also in terms of our global standing. To quote Anthony Albanese, he said, our entry ticket to international engagement is action on climate change. But Like I said earlier, PK, the speech was about more than just establishing Anthony Albanese as a prime minister capable of managing our defence and national security strategy and relationships. It was also about spruiking the three big policies that are currently held hostage essentially by a coalition saying no and the Greens wanting to push the case for no new coal and gas. We spoke about last week that National Reconstruction Fund, the Housing Fund and the Emissions Safeguard Mechanism. And I thought it was a, a pretty good speech, but there was a, certainly a rich dollop of snappy slogans filtered all the way through it. Things like shaping the future, not being scared of it, relief, repair, restraint, confidence, stability and security. Uh, the three word slogan was alive and well and deployed pretty effectively, I think. Oh, look, you know, we've talked about it before. People have heard the term, it's not ours, um, but, you know, it's the vomit principle, right? You repeat, you repeat, you repeat, you repeat till people start repeating the the lines. Oh, this is a government that's showing budget restraint. Relief, <laughs> repair. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so the Prime Minister's just following what is, you know, political orthodoxy, right, in terms of how you communicate a message. But I think it was a pretty meat and potatoes speech if you follow the Prime Minister closely as as we do in politics, I felt uh, there was nothing really surprising in anything that was in that speech. But I do think it laid the foundations of where he wants to take the country, at least in the next year. And and that's what he's all about right now, isn't it? He's all about, as you say, as we heard there in that grab at the start of the podcast, basically the message to people is that, you know, we know what the country needs and we're going to step go step by step methodically putting it in place. We're going to be not just talking about things and creating the illusion of things. We are going to be doing things. That's very much his his message, isn't it? Yeah, and it's interesting the way he's kind of particularly tried to – it wasn't new in this speech, but he really, again, tried to emphasise the link between local manufacturing, as you say, and and, and national security and the nexus between the investment in all of that space, manufacturing, to defence because – when you just talk in the prism of defence, yes, I think it's it's good for prime ministers to look like they're keeping people broadly safe and that becomes something that people trust in the prime minister that they feel is doing that job well. But at the same time, 
they want to sell an economic story as well. And we know that jobs and actually delivering out of AUKUS is quite key for the government. So you're going to hear a lot more about that, aren't you, Fran? Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, let's just change topics. It's certainly aligned, though, in terms of the theme on national security. This address that the Prime Minister delivered was just really a day after the ASIO boss, the the spy chief, Mike Burgess, gave his annual threat assessment. It happens every year. It's what's called an annual threat assessment, which revealed, though, some really concerning information. A couple of things worth noting for us. He disclosed that Australia is experiencing more foreign interference and espionage than ever before surpassing, get this, the period after September 11, where, of course, you know, there was a lot of um, uh, focus on this and the Cold War. Uh, And he also confirmed his agency had discovered and broken up a hive of spies, which, of course, you know, you get a vision of what that might look like, who were targeting, get this, journalist producers, so people like us, Fran, Mm. military veterans, judicial figures in Australia. Here's some of what he had to say. Based on what ASIO is seeing, more Australians are being targeted for espionage and foreign interference than at any time in Australia's history. More hostile foreign intelligence services, more spies, more targeting, more harm, more ASIO investigations, more ASIO disruptions. And from where I sit, it feels like hand-to-hand combat. Yeah, it was genuinely quite chilling stuff, I thought. That's the ASIO chief, Mike Burgess, giving that annual threat assessment. Fran, what did you make of it? I mean, quite quickly, the government was very much in lockstep with Mm. that message and saying he's right, we're investing in this. That's been an important message from them too. Absolutely. I mean, first off, let me say, I think it's refreshing to have an ASIO chief who makes it his business to be so frank in an address like this, uh, reporting on ASIO's work and the threats we face. It's not always been the case. I think Mike Burgess is particularly uh, upfront and frank, and I think that's terrific. That line, hand-to-hand combat, that's pretty effective line and chilling, as you say. It was a surprise to me, PK, that there are more spies and more espionage going on here than ever before. In in his words, he wanted to dispense with any sense that espionage is some romantic Cold War notion. He didn't give many details or any details really as to who was doing the spying and how they were doing it. But we know it's not just one country. He made that very clear. In other words, it's not just China. Multiple countries, according to Mike Burgess, And those doing it or trying to infiltrate and recruit proxies are intent, by and large, on stealing sensitive information. But even more chilling than just stealing secrets, Mike Burgess also said in that speech that ASIO had recently foiled a plot by two foreign powers to physically harm Australian residents who are critics of the regime including an attempt to lure a human rights activist offshore to be disposed of. So this is what he revealed. So it's an absolutely frightening thought, isn't it? So scary. These are people who are calling out human rights in their country of origin and they live in Australia, should be safe here, but this is this is how chilling the impact is and it just shows the actual very important work that security agencies do when they are um, seeking to protect people in that situation and, you know, this is, and we know this is really risky stuff. Some yeah, of these and we know this happens and, we know, and what he was telling us was that ASIO had actually foiled this plot, but we know there are cases, you know, of, of 
the citizens here who have family in well, China, in Rwanda, in other places who are either harmed or threatened with harm because of well, comments Well, we know it in here. our work because if we, you know, I'll just we give do. you an example. When we seek to interview somebody, they, they cannot speak. Often there's, you know, you hear what you hear on air, but there are a lot of other conversations. People aren't able to come on the record because they're scared. It is very chilling. But in another alarming revelation, he also stated he was pressured or, you know, basically lent on in some way by public servants, academics, business people to ease up on uh, the language that ACO was using, on their operations, on the way they're working. What did you think of that, Fran? Well, I was, I'm was. i keen, you know, I'd love to sit down with Mike Burgess and get him to tell me who and how this is happening. You know, how is it that uh, public servants or business people are pressuring a government? Academics, I mean, I guess you can see how universities might be leaning on the government to either speed up or lift some of their, you know, foreign entity checks and assessments that ASIO do before certain um, research, you know, co-projects between Australia and another country might be given the green light, for instance. There are those sorts of pressures on universities. So I can see how it might happen there, but I would like to, to hear and know more about this. Look, there is so much to talk about because the economic debate got so hot this week, which you mentioned at the start. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. <laughs> John Keogh is economics editor at the Australian Financial Review and our guest in the party room. Welcome. Great to be with you, PK and Fran. Yeah, John, terrific to have you on the party room. Thanks for joining us. John, this week of all weeks is great too because the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, has been out and about promising to end the super wars once and for all. He started floating changes to the superannuation legislation, starting with a definition. Is the government softening us up for changes in the May budget, do you think, John? Well, look, it's been a long-held objective of both sides of politics to clearly articulate what the objective of superannuation is. And so Chalmers has laid that down with a few markers, uh, talking about equity, sustainability, retirement with dignity, and that it also play alongside government support, i.e. the age pension, not just superannuation on its own. Uh, But it does feel like that is now triggering a debate, particularly around sustainability and equity, around the tax concessions we have in superannuation. And you can tell from the Treasurer's articulation in the last few days that that's something that is in strong uh, consideration for the budget, perhaps some sort of cap on large balances Mm. of superannuation, which receive relatively generous tax concessions. Yeah, the Treasurer has said his primary objective, what you just mentioned there, is to provide more certainty and security around the purpose of super. And as you say, that's mm. not really a surprise. You know, we knew they were going to go there. But but he's flying a kite, right? He's, you know, I've always got Mary Poppins in my head. Let's go fly a kite. I feel like he's a... F- <laughs> loves a kite and he's a treasurer so it makes sense that he likes kites because he want, he needs money mm. and he needs to work out how to pay for things. Let's just take a listen to what he had to say in his speech. Right now we're on track to spend more on super concessions, tax concessions, than the age pension by around 2050. Now I'm not convinced that that's a sustainable way to get to our destination. Good retirement incomes for more Australians now and into the future. And so while our immediate focus is on consulting on the objective of super, that can't be the end of the conversation about super's sustainable future. So clearly, John, opening the door for a conversation around the sustainability of these super tax Mm. concessions, um, but they have to be incredibly careful here. Look at the 
coalition's positioning already, John. They mm. didn't get a mandate to do this at the election. And you're hearing from the opposition, as they did on stage three tax cuts too, mm. where they're being critiqued for that. How are they going to manage that sensitivity? Yeah, it's fraught politically, isn't it? Because superannuation and tax is always a difficult conversation to have, I think, with the community and people start to get worried that they're going to suddenly raid their retirement nest egg. Um, but I think Jim Chalmers on your program, producer this week, actually dropped the biggest hint of all where he, talk, he talked about the tax concessions for people on a three with a $3 million balance mm. or more. And that was a really telling figure, I thought, that he dropped it in there. And that sort of laid down a bit of a marker where I think he's sort of hinting we need to review tax concessions for balances over that sort of amount. Uh, will that help the opposition? Uh, possibly, but I'm not sure there's going to be a heap of sympathy out there in the public yes. for reasonably <laughs> large balances. And Jim Chalmers has also made clear they're not looking at uh, increasing contributions tax or earning taxes or other sort of superannuation taxes, that this is sort of a reasonably narrow and confined thing they're looking at for now. But no doubt the coalition will make something of it because you rightly point out Labor didn't seek a mandate for this at the election. They, di they told us there weren't going to be any major changes to super. Just on that, because at mm. the press club, the Prime Minister was asked directly uh, about whether people should be worried about changes, and he couldn't have been clearer. He said, quote, we said we did not intend to make big changes to superannuation, and we don't. Mm. So are we all in agreeing that ruling out capping super balances to, say, three million, let's lose, use the Jim Chalmers figure, is not a big change to super? Mm, it's in the eye of the beholder. There's about 36,000 Australians who have super balances over that $3 million. So I think Jim Chalmers said it's less than 1% of account holders. So if you're in the other 99%, you probably don't think that is a big change. But if you're someone who's been fortunate enough to have these large balances, you've made your plans, your investments based on the historical rules, I, I think you would be thinking, gee, this is a pretty significant change. It's yeah, I think that's well put, though, John, like, you know, Know, that yeah, of course it's significant for them, but can they find the political line and argue? Well, we said no major changes. That's mm. not major, and that's just a bunch of rich people anyway, not the majority. And really, they they're not going to say this, but you know they don't vote for them anyway, right? I think that's the calculation they're probably taking. The interesting thing though is how much money is there in it for the government to say put a cap or an extra levy surcharge on balances above. $3 million, rough rule of thumb from the Grattan Institute, it might be a billion dollars or so a year. So it's it's a bit of money, but it's not a massive pot of gold that's going to pay for all the other spending pressures that the government says it's under too. So it, it, it's it's sort of minimal sort of dollars that you'd want to be able to raise if you're actually going to bother to make any sort of change. Yeah, but so that's you know one group of people and it might be politically easier to get, you know, majority support if you're just hitting people who are obviously very wealthy if they've got super balances of over $3 million. But trust, you know, it's a precious political commodity. The opposition's already mm. zeroing in on this as a broken promise. But the other part of this is legislating that clear definition of super, which doesn't mm. seem like a radical step. You know, Jim Chalmers wants to change it to something like to deliver adequate standards of living in retirement in an mm. equitable, sustainable and cohesive way. So the government's trying to get limit that definition, but even that's controversial, isn't it? I mean, some people are, I think, fairly attracted to the idea of being able to use their super balances to buy a house. 
for instance, mm. which is what the opposition is saying, it's your money, you should be able to get access to it. How does the government get over that very first change before they even start looking at clawing back a billion or two in super tax concessions from the wealthiest? I mean, that might be easier sell than to sell a limiting the use of your super. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things in the objective of Super Chalmers has proposed is it talks about preserving the savings for retirement incomes. And that's obviously trying to stop the coalition using superannuation money to buy a house, mm-hmm. particularly for young people. Which is their uh, policy at the last election. Exactly. Um, you know, some young people or even people in their 40s or 50s who haven't got into the housing market, uh, you know, they, they would be attracted to the idea if I just can't quite make it, but if I could just get my hands on my superannuation, I could get that deposit together. So there will be a, a portion of people. That, the other flip side of that, of course, is if everyone's allowed to get into their super, it's probably just going to drive up house prices as well. Yes. So the sort of unspoken secret around all this is even if this objective of super gets up, it's legislated, there's nothing stopping a future government legislating for superannuation, for example, to be used by first home buyers mm. or, or, or something else. I mean, it's just a law in there, but it's not like constitutional that would stop no, someone doing exactly. it. So it's more a framework to think about superannuation that's something that's going to be black and white, which you can and can't do forever. Yeah, that's right. It's just, you know, a particular government's policy. Another government could have another policy. That's absolutely true. Let's go and talk about something different, but, you know, something else that's clearly been a, a big issue um, this week, but also more more generally, and that's energy. No one mm. will, will be surprised there. Another battleground in the parliament, of course, Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek this week signed off on the Santos gas expansion project in Queensland, Surat Basin, which has an operational life of around, well, I think it's 30 years. Now, that approval comes at an interesting time as Labor tries mm. to negotiate with the Greens on support for its safeguard mechanism, which would force Australia's biggest emitters to to cut their carbon emissions by 5% a year. The Greens have said they want no new coal and gas, and here we have, tick, more gas. It's an interesting one politically, isn't it? Because the Greens are obviously saying we don't want new coal, gas and projects. I guess the thing about this project, it's an existing project, it's already operational, it's only adding, I think, an extra 1.3% or something to its total output. So it's really at the margin of an existing gas project uh, for Santos. But no doubt the Greens will make a big song and dance about this and and sort of tell the progressive voters out there, see, you can't trust Labor not to stop coal and gas projects. So, And it will put Labor in an awkward position as they try to negotiate in the Senate on the safeguard mechanism, given that the coalition has steadfastly said they're going to block it. Yeah, the signal from Labor is very much that we proceed in an orderly fashion. This was underway and the Minister Tanya Plibersek has just really done what she's, you know, determined by legislation to do, which is consider the environmental safeguards around all these kinds of projects and then sign off on it. That's their pitch. But this comes as AEMO released a, a, a fairly alarming report this week, um, mm. just one in a, in a sequence of them, uh, warning again of an energy shortfalls. They say the East Coast is at risk of electricity shortages by 2027. Now, on one side of the argument, people say, well, that's why we need to keep coal and gas going. See, we don't have enough energy. We're going to have blackouts because all these coal generators are pulling out of the market because it's not sustainable because you haven't managed it properly. But the energy minister, Chris Bowen, on breakfast with PK earlier this week, was suggesting that the government's done a lot 
of bringing energy policy online that will bring more energy online, and that's going to make a massive difference. But at the moment, AMO can't reflect that because these are not projects that are actually being built yet. But he sounded pretty confident that mm. there would be no such shortfall because their policies are going to bring on new projects. Now, you know, in one sense, he would say that, wouldn't he? But what do you think? I think it's a big risk for Australia and we've got to be realistic that unless we do increase um, energy storage, generation and transmission very, very significantly Fast. over the next few years, very quickly, I mean, AEMO itself points out that New South Wales and Victoria could start to face risks of shortages by around 2025 or so. That's, that's only a couple of years away. But Chris Bowen says they've got all these subsidy schemes to bring on that kind of storage mm. and, um, you know, firming power. Do, do you think they do? Is that, can they well, claim that? The challenge is getting these projects up off the ground because sometimes there's a resistance to certain projects being bought in, uh, built in certain communities. Um, you've got to get the approvals done as well. And also the sort of – I know Chris Bowen doesn't like to talk too much about gas or promote it too much, but we, I think the realistic sort of view of the world is we are going to need gas as a pretty important transition fuel for the foreseeable future – and there's not a lot being done in the States to get more gas out of the ground and use that as a transition fuel. And so I think that's something that's going to have to be confronted. New South Wales starting to make some inroads there. Victoria's pretty resistant to it. And so I, I do think it's a big risk for households and business in the middle of this decade that um, we could be facing really um, power shortages or the risk of them at least. Yeah, they, the, I, I do get the sense from Chris Bowen that uh, the urgency of this is not missed on him, though. Uh, let's see if it actually can be delivered. The big projects, though, aren't they? The whole rewiring the notion. I mean, that's a massive piece of work. We're going to have to have skilled people up and import skills and haven't got the, you know, the co-investment from the private sector yet. This is a massive job that we're only really just embarking on. Mm. Well, exactly. And because we've had so much uncertainty over energy policy over the last decade or so more, uh, you haven't necessarily had as much private sector investment because they just haven't had the certainty to know what the rules of the game are going to be. Now, I think the government's safeguard mechanism, uh, along with some other programs, will, will be helpful in delivering that. But still, um, yeah, it's not an easy environment. Before we let mm. you go, I just want to touch on the upcoming Aston by-election, which will take place on... April Fool's Day. <laughs> Sorry, I find that funny. Uh, the 1st of April. Uh, the Liberal Party have now pre-selected Rashina Campbell, a really experienced political candidate. Uh, Rashina is a multicultural candidate, a woman, really, really successful in her own right. It looks like the Liberal Party has listened to the feedback of voters in the election. Um, and they don't want to repeat the mistakes of the last election. In fact, so much so that uh, Peter Dutton got himself um, even into that pre-selection meeting, <laughs> like he rolled up for it, which most Liberals tell me that was unusual. That's just how you know much he's leaning into this. Uh, Labor's already had their candidate on the ground, though. This is a real test for, for both parties, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's particularly a test for Peter Dutton and his leadership early on um, in opposition because it is, you know, notionally it's, it should be a reasonably safe Liberal seat. It historically has been. It's in the real mortgage belt of, uh, of Melbourne. I, I know that area reasonably well. My mum lives not that far from there. And so you'd think um, with, you know, rising interest rates, inflation, and now the government talking about potential superannuation tax changes, Peter Dutton's going to try and make a big deal about that to say you can't trust. Labor, 
back in our Liberal candidate. But I, I see it as a real test for him because it's a seat the Liberals really should win. And I think um, if Labor somehow managed to snatch it, gee, that would be a, a really big coup for Anthony Albanese. Oh, it certainly would. I mean, we should remind everybody listening that the, the rule of thumb is that oppositions win by-elections, isn't it? Exactly. And especially when you already hold the seat as well, Fran, I think uh, the Liberals would be pulling out all stops to make sure they win this one. John, you have been such a wealth of information. Thanks for coming in the party room. Good to talk with you, PK and Fran. Yes, thanks, John. See you later. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. And the bells are ringing, which means it's time for question time. And this week's question comes from Marg on email. Marg, thank you. You ask, at what point do you think the government will begin the conversation about negative gearing and franking credits better targeted than super? Oh, it's a great question, Mark. Uh, look, we've got two, as we were just talking about with John, we've got two examples now. Stage three tax cuts floated and then withdrawn. Now, super, where still floated a bit, but it has to be minimal change and a bigger conversation maybe later, where the government is flying kites and seeing how the public might respond because there is a structural problem with the budget, right? But at the same time, it's made a whole bunch of promises because it was so stung by 2019 and its election loss. That means that things like franking credits and negative gearing are really dangerous territory for them. Now, I think you'll be waiting for a while to see genuine reform on negative gearing. I do. I don't. I cannot see that anyone wants to get into that fight right now because so many people have relied on it for so long that it's becomes this so many winners and losers with those sorts of fights that it the political consensus is very hard to build. I don't think you'll see it yet, but I do think to his credit the treasurer Jim Chalmers does try to get people engaged with budget fairness, structural issues. Um it's about whether the broader government has enough political capital to go and have that fight mm. in a very, very febrile, difficult environment. And I don't think the appetite is quite there yet. It's not there yet. 2019 still looms large in their memory when, you know, they thought they were going to track to win that election. Bill Shorten had some big spending policies, but also uh, some big revenue raising ones, including, of course, negative gearing and franking credits. So I don't think they're ready to go there yet. But both um, I mean, we have such spending pressures, such revenue pressures in this country. You know, just think about what's coming online soon. The government's promising record defence spending as part of the response to the Defence Strategic Review. We've got um, the Fair Work Commission ordering us, the government to pay aged care workers that pay increase all in one go, not over two tranches, which is what the government had thought it was going to be able to do. We've got aged care uh, Royal Commission findings that need to be funded. We're talking big dollars, Medicare reforms. These are very expensive. The current tax base won't do it all uh, unless, we rack it con unless we're content to rack up you know, big, big deficits for as far as the eye can see. So I think there are going to have to be some tough conversations brought to bear, but I don't think the government's in the mood to do it just yet. Not there yet. Not there yet. Uh, but, you know, watch this space because clearly there are people who are agitating for for big changes. And then, of course, there's going to be the pressure on the government just before the budget to increase JobSeeker. That pressure never goes away. And now we've got this sort of, you know, David Pocock one committee that will urge the government to lift that. So these are big, big spending pressures. Mm, or uh, as I like to call it, Fran, the David Pocock 
booby trap that he has set up just before the budget so that the government <laughs> has to actively reject, um, if it wants to go there, any call for an increase, which, you know, feels like it would be inevitable. Well, that's it for today's podcast, although you got that bonus one from Fair Day. If you haven't listened to it, it's it's worth it. A really interesting conversation, I think, with our two panellists. Um, keep sending your questions in. We like getting them. You can tweet us using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Do it. And remember, follow us on the ABC Listen app so you'll never, never miss an episode. That's it. We'll be back next week. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.